I'm playing uh, Middle Earth Shadow of War. Um, no. With friends or because you don't have friends? Oh, that's hurtful. <laughs> and let me tell you, the orcs are my friends, Rob. <laughs> because in this game, you get to befriend a bunch of orcs um, and also dominate their minds and, and slaughter them. Um, but it's they all have these crazy personalities the orcs yeah there's this thing called the nemesis system where like you fight them and then they come back and they have no no illegal is the nemesis system sorry new attributes and things like that right okay and um like cockney um back talking street toughs you know it's like like if they took the you know the entire cast of snatch and 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 put them into Mordor, right? <laughs> so um, they have these these advantages, like you've got these special moves, and uh, sure. like they can block some of your moves, and yeah. and then yeah. they also have these problems where they've got these fears, right? And and like some are reasonable, some are like, okay, well this this guy's got a fear of being on fire, so if you set him on fire, he you know freaks out, but then. <laughs> There's only so many different things you can do in the game. So one of the fears they have is like, well, I don't want you to fire an arrow at my leg and pin me to the ground. Okay. It's a very specific <laughs> fear. Um, not it's it's not like, you know, something like, oh, um, well, this orc has the fear of being at a party where he only knows one person uh and that person keeps wandering around and he's like uh uh but uh, I. there's an orc that has a lingering feeling that he's uh he just he's going to be caught as a fraud at any moment because he has no idea what he's doing uh, his greatest fear <clears throat> but i love him i love my orcs <laughs> hey orcs for life man it's time Time for a thrilling story of romance, adventure, mystery, anything with an expired copyright. It's time for another Interrupted Tale. All right, folks. Hello and welcome, everyone, to another episode of Interrupted Tales. The show where my friend and I take turns reading stories to you, the listener, while the other person constantly interrupts. As always, I am Rob, and this is my friend Alan. Hey, Rob. I'm excited to be here. I think we all are. Uh, this week's story we've, is a real humdinger of a tale. Uh, it's from Hutchinson Story Magazine, uh, from what I think is September 1919. Um it was kind of hard to tell, actually. It's it's lost to the mists of time exactly when the story is from. But, it's uh, old. It's very old. And uh, it comes to us from the author of The Landlord of the Love a Duck. Oh, oh sure. Uh, so I I don't need to tell all of you about uh, Stacey Amoner's pedigree. Um, and this story is called The Genie of the Dingle. All right.
It simply would not come right. <laughs> okay, that's why <laughs> that's why you need a tingle genie. <laughs> David Stroud sat back in his chair and stared out of the window, with all the sheets of manuscript scattered on the table in front of him. Thus, he had sat for nearly three hours without once putting his pen to the paper. Sounds like it's set in a Seattle coffee shop. He knew that the main idea for the book was a good one, and there was a kind of second theme a little below the surface which intrigued him. But things would not somehow dovetail. Uh, yeah, there's a whole leap motif about class struggle, but you'll probably only understand the flying monkeys part. <laughs> it's, it's, a lot of it gets lost between the fights between the werewolves and the vampires. Um, he stared from the window to the fireplace. He bit his nails... A very bad habit. He lighted a cigarette and walked up and down the room. Okay, <laughs> the the nails was the bad habit in that one. <laughs> smoking a cigarette promote health. Don't uh, ruin it by chewing your nails. It was a meagerly furnished room with a bedroom adjoining, the two comprising his lodgings in an obscure house in West Kensington. David was young, barely twenty-three and he had come to London from the cathedral town of Norwich, with the usual determination to set the big city by the ears. Yeah, Norwich. They started churning out cathedrals in the Industrial Age, and they haven't stopped since. <laughs> Nothing. Big cathedral town. His father had been an organist and music teacher, and on his death had left a small sum of money to be divided between David and his sister Hilda. He bequeaths to you each one half of an organ split down the middle. <laughs> Samson style. He brought yes. <laughs> Which one of you truly loves the Solomon organ? style? Oh, I didn't even get that right. Samson Solomon. Whatever. He brought them in about eighty. It brought them in about eighty pounds a year each. But Hilda had since married a fairly uh, prosperous young doctor and continued to live at Norwich. The mother had died when they were both quite young. Yes. Well, David, the mother is dead. Yes, Hilda, I shall miss the mother. <laughs> David, consequently, was alone in London except for several chance acquaintances. Loneliness has its compensations as well as its bleak disadvantages. <laughs> yeah, I've applied for loneliness compensation. But you have to show proof that you're actively looking for friends. It's a, it's a pain. This is why socialism doesn't work, Alan. Don't get me on my, uh, don't get me started. Don't get me started here. David, uh, he did not entirely regret his loneliness. To a man who's going to set London by the ears, write the big novel, the world-disturbing play. Um, Equus? <laughs> disturbing, is correct. A large amount of loneliness is essential. He had been in London a year. And it had one or two short stories accepted and had done a little hack journalism. Yeah, I, I started a gawker blog called Organistic with a... It's got a K at the end. <laughs> but, the, but the big novel was still in a very embryonic stage. And on this morning, after two hours of boredom thinking, he suddenly became intensely alive to his loneliness. It was June, and pale sunlight was streaming through the windows. Somewhere... The world must be very beautiful. Spring bake it, Bitha, who's coming? Ah. I know, I know what it is. I'm stale, he thought. He contemplated a walk in the park, his usual recreation, but decided that this would hardly meet the case. 
It was change he wanted. Something definite and magical at the same time. Like Fast Pass Plus at Disney World. <laughs> he thought for a long time and then went and borrowed an old Cassell's timetable from his landlady. And you better bring it back, mate. All you black is bordering timetables all the time. All the time. <laughs> timetable for your timetables. Are you being served? Um, <clears throat> he knew nothing about the country near London, but he reckoned that one would have to travel for at least an hour to escape from bricks and mortar. At last, he pitched on a place called Mobblesham by the Mill. <laughs> it definitely sounds magical. <laughs> he liked the name. It was on a sideline not far from Guilford. The fare was cheap, and it would be somewhere near the Surrey Downs. It would serve. Rather apathetically, he boarded a motor bus to Waterloo and took his ticket. The train journey wearied him, and when he arrived at a station where he had to change, he hesitated whether he should not return. He had a premonition of failure. What kind of what kind of failure could there be? Like, he gets there and the, the town is moved, and no one's heard from the town in months. He... he... <laughs> He just he's fit. he does not do well in public transportation. Okay. The people in the train irritated him. The interminable suburbs gave him no hope. Even when he arrived at Mobblesham by the Bay, he was doomed to disappointment. It was a plain, villa-y little town with an ugly main street, a large brewery, and innumerable tin chapels. Please, I come from cathedral country. <laughs> there was no mill. And no evidence of there ever having been a mill. That's the that was the big selling point on the trip. And uh, hey, now where am I going to hang around and watch people grind wheat into flour? <laughs> it was nearly midday when he arrived there, and he walked listlessly into an inn and ordered some bread and cheese and some shandy gaff. Yeah, you were best shandy gaff on a couple indie films, weren't you? I was. Uh, I was. Uh, Assistant to the Shandy Gaff, unfortunately. You were the Shandy Grip Gaff? <laughs> yep. Having negotiated this modest lunch, that was a, it must have been tough, some cheese and meat uh, and bread. Having negotiated this modest lunch, he started out to walk. The road led for nearly a mile between high hedges with fields on either side and then began to slope upwards. His legs ached. The prospect of a climb depressed him. Yeah. What doesn't? <laughs> I mean, this guy is like fucking Walter Mitty without the imagination. <laughs> it's a thrill a minute. Coming to a fork in the road, he chose the narrower road, which still led upwards. After a time, the country opened out more, and he sat on a gate and smoked a cigarette. I'm in rotten condition, he thought. The cigarette had no attractions for him, and he wanted to lie down and sleep. So insistent was this desire that he decided that he must make a determined effort to counter it. I take it back. He's more like Baudelaire without the poetry. <laughs> he just, threw just all ennui. Ennui. He threw away the cigarette and began to walk briskly. He selected a narrow lane which led through a copse of young larch three, trees. His choice was influenced largely by the fact that the lane was steeper than the road, and he wanted to do what he didn't feel inclined to. Yeah, I feel that way about watching the new season of Empire. <laughs> It's just not the same. He urged himself forward. The air was becoming very fresh and sweet, and the birds were singing gaily. He began to think about his book, but nothing happened. The same old ideas still jumbled against each other. Yeah, but look how far it got J.J. Abrams. 
Ooh, snap. He crossed a stretch of common and caught a glimpse of blue distances. He was certainly up in the Surrey Hills. An old man passed and touched his hat. David jerked out, Oh, how do you do? In the tight voice of a man who has been too long confined to city life. Can I hear your confined city man voice again? Oh, how do you do? Uh, you don't talk all easy like us country fellas. I have a question. When the old man passed and touched his hat, was he touching David's hat? Is that yeah. some weird greeting in this country? That's the double grab. <laughs> he passed a farm where a team of large, sleek horses were just returning to the fields in charge of an old carter and a boy. David sighed and rested once more against the farm gate. He was in bad condition. And yet there was something a little soothing in all of this. Kind of like a story that about dingles that puts you to sleep, but it's a good kind of sleep, a power nap kind of sleep. It's nothing but dingle. He went on. Suddenly the lane forked again. This time he took the lower turning because it seemed the more deserted, better attuned to his melancholy mood. He had not progressed more than 400 yards when he came to the dingle. It nestled in the hollow of a disused chalk pit. It was wild and overgrown with shrubs, gorse, and delicate birch trees. He instinctively plunged into it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't just dive into every wild no. dingle you find. I don't know. I go I go face first at any dingle, man. Whoa, man. <laughs> the soil was... <laughs> you gotta know where that dingle's been. The soil was sandy. Fresh, young, green leaves tickled his face and hair. Brambles caught at his trousers. He came to the carcass of an old fallen tree, partially covered with moss and lichen. He chose a part of the stem where the bark had peeled away and sat down. It was extraordinarily quiet and remote. He had never felt so cut off from the world. Bees droned around him in the gorse. Uh, the gorge. Gorse. Typo. Who knows? The little sounds of birds and living things unfamiliar to him soothed his senses. The sun, streaming through the leaves, made bewildering patterns. Marlin, Martin swung in semicircles at the top of the pit. Waiting for his inevitable death. <laughs> it was somehow cozy. He sat with his elbows dug into his knees and his hands holding his head and examined the activities of some red ants darting in and out from beneath the bark of the tree he had sat on. He had an uncomfortable feeling that the ants would get onto his trousers or his coat and crawl all over him. Ooh, so cozy. <laughs> he edged farther away and looked around him again. He felt like a small boy scenting adventure, but slightly nervous of the unknown. In this arabesque of sunlight and foliage, it was difficult to detach things. That's weird wording. I feel like the only thing you detach are attachments and retinas, <laughs> which are a kind of attachment. <laughs> it was the kind of place that a small boy could imagine the eyes of a tiger or a rattlesnake. Or even a red Indian. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he would like to be a small boy again, playing at red Indians with his sister Hilda in the garden at Norwich. Yeah, so to experience the bloom of youth and casual, innocent racism again. <laughs> his mother's slim figure in the doorway. Well, that just kind of trails off creepily. Um... Why should the father, why should the father confessor himself not be the lover? His secret hidden behind his dark cowl. 
Why should he not tell the story? Strange. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck? What? (laughs) Strange. But as David sat there blinking in the sunlight, he could almost swear that a voice whispered this into his ear. What did it mean? The father confessor? Why, yes, of course there was a father confessor in the story. It had not occurred to him. He was not thinking of his book, but suddenly he began to think very rapidly. The whole thing unfolded itself before his mind's eye. Oh no, I think the L.S. Dingle is coming on. Just sit back and let it ride, man. On those lines, the story would be much more manageable. The various themes began to coordinate. His pulses were throbbing at an unaccustomed rate. He could see it all. The main idea became simple and dignified, inevitable. Man, I just know my writing prompt response is going to get upvoted on Reddit. (laughs) Everything took its place. His fingers itched to set it down, but he had not even a notebook. He sat there till the sun began to set and no one disturbed him. He glowed with a quiet contentment, feeling himself the medium of expression of forces greater than himself. Like ghostwriting for George Takai. (laughs) Oh my... Then, when the light began to fade, he rose up and shook himself. Queer, he thought, that it should have come like that. Of course, it was nonsense, my fancying I heard the voice. I'm ridiculously run down. I I, I must do this more often. Uh, It only takes a dingle a day to do you. (laughs) Just a dingle a day. He walked quickly down the hill, humming to himself. When he arrived home, he snatched a hasty meal, and then he sat down to write. He wrote all night. He slept till the afternoon and awoke still tingling with a sense of newfound power. Thoughts came easily and had only to be set down. For nearly three weeks he worked at pressure. The story made astounding progress. I mean, it's terrible, but there's so much of it. <laughs> it's like it's like an L. Ron Hubbard book. And then another day came when the feeling of emptiness and uh, the and feeling of emptiness and lassitude assailed him. He struggled through the day, restless, feverish, and discontented. He wanted to go on, but his brain seemed disinclined to work. On the other hand, in his anxiety to get the book finished, he resented having to waste a day in the country. When night came, he realized that he had accomplished nothing. Yeah, welcome to the working week. (laughs) He slept badly and rose at dawn. I must go for another tramp, he thought. He caught the earliest train and went to Epson. He walked up to the downs. A light breeze was building up a splendid architectural arrangement of clouds. <laughs> yeah, it's a Frank Gehry-inspired cumulostratus layer. Yes, I know it looks like a bunch of clouds. That was the intention. <laughs> it's too shiny. Still too shiny. It was a glorious day. He walked and walked and walked. Sometimes he rested and began to think of his book. But no ideas came. It will come as before, quite suddenly. (laughs) Yep, when the diggle tingles, it comes very (laughs) suddenly. (laughs) He determined, I feel better anyway. It's foolish not to do this more often. He walked till the evening, occasionally lying down by clumps of bushes, leaning on stiles and gates, humming and trying to think. When it became time to go, he felt his limbs quivering with exhaustion, but no progress had been made with his work. He returned home disgruntled and crestfallen. 
and covered in ticks. <laughs> the next day, he found himself in no better case. He idled the day away, the issue of the book becoming more confused. Uh, well, now I've got a father confessor and a mother superior and a food processor. I think I need an editor. <laughs> At the end of the week, he made another desperate sortie on to the fields and lanes, still without result. It was not till the following Wednesday that he decided he, that he would once more go back to the dingle. I knew you'd be back. Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah, welcome back to the dingle. Once you go dingle, you're never going to mingle. It was a gray day, but tolerably warm. He took the train to Mobblesham by the mill and started out to find the dingle. He had some difficulty in doing this, as he had made no note of the roads and turnings which he had taken on the previous occasion. He wandered afar, came back, and at length recognized the little lane which skirted the chalk pit. The dingle had lost its wild patterns of bewildering, bewildering sunlight and shadow. It was in a benign mood. The air was tender and caressing. <laughs> yeah, as if it was a horse whisperer on a first date. <laughs> The young trees nodded in a companionable, ma companionable manner. A rabbit darted from a hole in the sand, stared at him with almost friendly eyes, and then scampered away among the bracken. He felt that he wanted to laugh. I feel that way about John Mulaney jokes. I mean, you feel like you should, but... <laughs> so true. He sat on the fallen tree and began to think of amusing incidents of his boyhood. All his present troubles were forgotten. And then suddenly... Something seemed to whisper in his ear. The fisherman goes from the east side of the river to the west, from the west to the east. Is it only fish he carries in his basket? Wait, wait. Air. No. Hope. Okay. All right. Hold on, Gollum. I need a, I need a second. I got it. I got it. I got it. Okay. Jesus was carrying him the whole time. He, he took the wheel. Yeah, it's easy. He, st he started. What was the strange intrusion? What fisherman? What basket? What river? What did it all mean? It's like a Pinterest page full of Khalil Gilbron quotes. <laughs> His mind reverted instantly to the book. Fisherman? There was no fisherman in the book, but yes, of course, the character of Fra Lombardo. Yes, Fra Lombardo, best friend to Francesco Rinaldi. <laughs> Yes, I can hear you, Clem Fandango. Uh, <laughs> it would be possible. The analogy was obvious. Clearly and swiftly, his mind began to work. The ill-assorted arrangement of ideas fell into a proper perspective. He visualized the working up, the development of character and plot, the climax, the slackening, and the easy passage to a surprising finish. Yes, it, it's also magically constructed, like a magical how to write a novel self-help book but so magical <laughs> the whole thing was complete and finished in his mind david gazed around him surprised delighted and mystified he peered into the bushes and mounds of sand as though expecting some elf with gossamer wings to spring before him playing upon a reed he trembled with a kind of exultation he did not believe in spirits or elves but there must be something about the dingle. Yeah. I, I, I think there's something about dingle was probably like one of the direct to DVD sequels. 
<laughs> he put the hands to he put his hands to his head and staggered to the lane. Of course, it was absurd. It had just so happened. Ideas came to one at odd and unexpected moments, and they had happened to come on the two occasions when he visited the Dingle. He hurried down the hill and caught his train. For over a month, he worked un- in- uninterruptedly. The book was finished and dispatched to a publisher who had shown an interest in his work. Yeah, please tell me you got another one of those hot tales where they catch fish and confess everything. Oh, it <laughs> sells like hotcakes. Is there a basket in this story? Because that'll oh. take it over the top. God, why is he going from west to east and <laughs> east again? What's his journey? <laughs> but it was not published for six months. In the meantime, he was at work and other things, a play, some poems and essays, and another novel. A short format blank verse dialectic that I put on Medium and a spoken word art installation called Specious Millennium Violet. <laughs> it was not till late in the autumn that he became convinced that, for him in any case, there was a genie of the dingle. And that's how Beavis and Butthead solved the mystery of Morning Wood. <laughs> for, he, for he tried the experiment again and again, and it never appeared to fail. Directly, his creative power became stagnant. He took the train to Mobblesham and sought his dingle. Sometimes the little whispers of the leaves were slower in their delivery of the revelation than at other times, but they never utterly disappointed him. Sometimes the whispers told him of Gorgorath the Elder, who devours all time, but he just couldn't fit him into a romance novel without it feeling shoehorned. <laughs> On occasions, the illumination would not come till he was returning from the dingle, or even till he went to bed that night. One day he tried the experiment of writing in the dingle. He took a writing pad and fountain pen, but the result was not successful. Ideas came, but not the facility to set them down. I call them my shower thoughts. <laughs> my <laughs> he was distracted by the sunlight and the movement. It did not appear to be within the covenant of the high gods who presided over this enchanted spot. It was essentially a place for inspiration, for adjustment, but not for the deliberate prosecution of a routine. In the winter, when the book was published... It happened to catch the eye of a luminary in a little office off the Strand, who foresaw the glories of a personal scoop in discovering a young and unknown writer. He let himself go in a weekly journal devoted to such things and became maudlin over it in a large club in St. James. It was no great sale, but it, it attained a success distem. Other works were published and commented upon. And occasionally retweeted, but... Didn't really get the viral traction he was hoping for. He soon learned to never read the comments. Uh, even in the winter, he visited the dingle, like you do. When the trees were bare and there were great squidgy pools of water, he would still go and plunge about, humming to himself, laughing gaily, feeling virile and joyous. Virile, yeah. I've always said puddle jumping is nature's cialis. <laughs> And the, and the little voice was always eloquent. He began to know every mound and tree and shrub in the dingle, and he watched their growth and color and peculiarity. He especially loved the berries that grew in the dingle. The dingle berries. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
David was not a mystic. He tried to explain the whole thing to himself. Well, you see, the CIA started MK Ultra. <laughs> Step one. There's just... You've heard of remote dingling, right? <laughs> I heard they killed a goat with it, man. You don't want to mess with those dingles. There's just something about this place that's sympathetic. The walk is good for me. By the time I get here, I am feeling well. They're not really voices I hear, only I like it. It's very beautiful, extraordinarily quiet and remote. And then the combination of things stimulates me. That's all to uh, that's all to it. But it's very queer. Yeah, well, you do you. Why is he got to justify this to us? Yeah, dude. You, whatever, you want to dingle it up? Go ahead, man. Wherever your dingle takes you, we salute you. It was two years later that David met the genie face-to-face. He was becoming a successful man, already recognized as being more than promising. This young author is going to count, announced the Delphic Oracle of the literary world. He's a rising star in the world of dingle literature, says Bennett Cerf. (laughs) He had moved to more... uh, commodious rooms and even bought an upright piano on which he groped his way to vague satisfactions yeah on the weekends keanu and russell crowe and i get together and just jam just sort of noodle around 30 odd foots of dingle um that's a deep russell crowe cut there One day late in June, he was sitting in the dingle, musing upon the strange influence it had exercised upon his fate. The dingle was in its wild, patterned mood, the sunlight dancing through the leaves. He was staring idly at the quivering appearance of a stunted almond tree, and thinking how difficult it was in this effect to separate one tone from another, when suddenly he became uncomfortably aware that eyes were watching him through the pattern. Alfred Hitchcock's rear dingle. (laughs) There are going to be a lot more dingle jokes. I I do not want to see Alfred Hitchcock's rear dingle. What? It's a masterpiece. (laughs) There's a long list of dingles I'd rather see. It's it's thrilling and shocking. (laughs) He stood up, and instantly a branch quivered vertically, and the genie sprang lightly to the ground near his feet. She had bright, puck-like eyes, and an oval, elfish face framed in a mass of dark brown hair, a dark green, fustian kind of tunic, and brown-stockinged legs. She said, Oh, I say, I'm awfully sorry. Well, here I am on a tiger's skin again. That, that's a deep cut. That's, that's deep. Uh, David stared at her foolishly and re-echoed, I'm awfully sorry. It was obvious that each felt that they were prying into the privacy of the other's life. I didn't see you till just now, remarked the genie. Oh, I was only just sitting there answered David limply. The way they're talking, this is just the opening of a Zoe Deschanel (laughs) rom-com. She's going to pull out a ukulele at any moment. It's very jolly here, said the genie. Do do you live here? murmured the mystified young man. Then the surprising visitor from the spirit world laughed and shook her shining hair, and in the process displayed a line of small and perfect teeth. I do. Pretty nearly, she answered. I live down the road at that red house. It's called Klonbaggen for some reason or other. I haven't any brothers or sisters, and I come here nearly every day. 
and she was in a prom dress. And when they drove to her parents' house, they said their daughter died 20 years ago. My father's a doctor, and he's always busy. And my mother's in London. She sat on her haunches on the sand, with her legs crossed facing him. David stared at her as though still doubtful of her reality. She was just a girl, perhaps 16 or 17, the daughter of a country doctor. At least that's what she said. But what was real and what was imaginary in the dingle? He said huskily, You say you come here often? I've been here nearly every day for years and years and years. So, you know, squatter's rights. (laughs) Strange that I have not seen you. Why do you come to the dingle? David started. He felt curiously alarmed and self-conscious. He looked down at his hands and coughed, and then, kneeling towards her, he said, Do you ask why I come? I'm a writer, an author. I come to the dingle because... Uh, Because of um, untraceable plagiarism. Uh, um, Inspiration. (laughs) He paused, and suddenly she leapt to her feet and clapped her hands. Oh, I know, I know, she said. How lovely. And shaking her roguish curls at him, she darted through the trees. David stretched out his arms and called after her then realized that he was behaving rather ridiculously and sat down. After all, it was quite simple. A lonely little girl living not far away. She came here to play. But why had he not seen her before? Had she been watching him? As per Rockwell? (laughs) What did she mean when she said, I know? And above all, would he see her again? He returned home, thinking of his work and the elfin child. Her visit had been so brief and her movements so quick he had not had the opportunity to study her as he wanted to. (laughs) But she was very beautiful, very vital, a goddess worthy of the dingle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That is not an appropriate (laughs) thing to say about an underage genie. (laughs) It was a different time, Alvin. It was a different dingle. He was in an inspired mood the next day, and he began what proved to be his most successful work, an allegory called the Chalk Pit. That's kind of literal for an allegory. (laughs) It's like, here's the place I went. Here's an allegory about it. It, it, It's actually, see, the twist is it's actually a mud pit. See? Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He visited the dingle three times before he saw his genie again, and then, one day, she slithered between the branches of the almond tree and threw herself on the ground by his feet. He gave an exclamation, and she said, Well, he put out his hand, but without touching her, he exclaimed, Oh, it is you. I've been looking for you. I've seen you twice. Why didn't you speak to me? You were working. How do you know? I could tell by your face. You queer child, tell me your name. Stella. I love the name of Stella. Read me something you've written. Okay, it's called A Streetcar Named Mobile Shim by the Mill. (laughs) Alas, I've nothing here. Tell me a story, then. David blinked at the sunshine, real and imaginary. He smiled and wondered and worshipped. Then suddenly he began to tell her the story which he had not yet written. The chalk pit. He pieced it together, watching the joy and sorrow and sympathy flicker across her sensitive face. Is it me, or is this author really good at imagining better stories 
than the story that we're reading. <laughs> he would have made a good blogger. And, and when he had finished it, she was crying. And he said, I'm sorry, Stella. She did not look at him, but she replied, no, I like to cry. It's very beautiful. Misery is the greatest love. And suddenly she snatched his hand and kissed it and walked away through the trees. After that, she seemed bolder. Nearly every time he visited the dingle, she came to meet him. And he found a place more inspiring and fruitful of ideas than ever. Sort of an anti-internet. <laughs> before <laughs> Anti-Twitter. Uh, before the end of the summer, he called on her father, Dr. Parsons, a rotund, red-faced little man quite unlike his daughter. He was courteous, but somewhat preoccupied. He sat forward, leaning on his knees, and asked David a few questions about his professional life. Oh, me? Well, uh, I spend most of my time sitting on a log, and people tell me I'm great at it. <laughs> he listened to the replies without giving the impression that they had sunk in. A dog cart was waiting to take him on his rounds. He rose at the end of ten minutes and pressed David's hand and murmured, Very, very delighted. Any time. And he waved his hand vaguely towards the fireplace. Uh, no, so about the uh, insulin prescription? Is it... <laughs> Sandy, I like the vaguely towards the fireplace, like, oh, feel free to jump in at any time. Uh, David heard afterwards from the villagers that Dr. Parsons' wife was a very beautiful Romanian lady, but there had been some great trouble. They no longer lived together. Romanian? No, she left me in. <laughs> she was in London or Paris, and she never visited her husband or child. And in time, David went beyond the dingle. He went for walks with Stella and sat in her garden under the walnut tree and told her of his ambitions and his life and his sister and his work and the people he met in the social life, which was gradually enveloping him. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm big in the London scene, but there are so many hacks. You know, no one, no one else really lives their art. But, uh, <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's take a break from this guy. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, need to, ready. I need to take a quick dingle. So, the age-old logic puzzle, the genie or the dingle? <laughs> which, which came which, first? Which <laughs> you pick? I don't know. I, you know, I'm a little surprised because, I mean, maybe I was just a little too literal. But between her appearance and the title and that she popped out of nowhere and the weird whispering business, like... I'm I'm really I was really expecting her to be a real genie and not a doctor's daughter. Yeah, well, who knows where this uh crazy story may end up. Ah, what fools these mortals be. For three years, this strange friendship grew and quickened, and David was then referred to as, quote, this brilliant young author. And his sister Hilda, in her placid home in Norwich, blushed with pride and wealthy people sought him out and publishers began to jostle each other for his wares. And David was dazzled. 
He was accomplishing what he had set out to accomplish, and all within the space of five years. He began to adore flattery, and adulation was food and wine to him. And everybody said, wow, I just love Stacey Ammoniade, author of The Landlord of the Love and Duck. I mean, <laughs> David. David. They all just love David. <laughs> love a duck. There was only one unconcerning or disconcerting element in this joyous scheme. He encountered it on the lawn of Dr. Parsons' house. It came in the person of Ephraim Barnes. Ephraim Barnes was a young, keen-faced man of Semitic origin. <clears throat> we'll move past that. He was a successful builder and contractor who drove about the country in his own car. Being cured of a bad attack of sciatica by Dr. Parsons, he had visited him and there, of course, met Stella. Yeah, who doesn't visit their chiropractor <laughs> occasionally? Stella showed him no special attention, but Ephraim was persistent, keen, and thorough. And suddenly David realized that he was jealous. Finding him there on three successive occasions, he took his dingle maiden to task. Dingle maiden. <laughs> I've been, you know, I've been taking my dingle maiden to task since I was 11. And, you know, you, you just got to learn that it, it, there's more to life than that, man. Back off. Please, they're, they're noble Viking warriors, the Dingle Maidens. <laughs> Stella, are you fond of this man? No, David. Not a bit. Not a scrap. He bores me. You would never marry him, Stella. Stella peeped at him coyly and remarked, Oh dear, oh dear, how foolishly you talk. On his way home, David suddenly thought, Good God, I'm in love with that girl. And he began to reason with himself. To be a, quote, brilliant young author and to arrive, arrived at, are two very different things. Oh, Stacy, Stacy, Stacy. Stacy. David was by no means well off. He lived above his income. He found fashionable house parties far more expensive than expensive hotels. Well, if you what? buy a new house for each party. <laughs> yeah, you don't really get your savings to get like the 10th or 11th house. It's that's Yeah. It's... But you got to get there. That's the hard part. He ached to buy antique furniture, pictures, and to have a beautiful house. And he had and he could see no prospects of attaining anything so fantastic. It's all HGTV's fault. It's this House hunter's dream chasing culture of ours, Rob. <laughs> he needs a tiny house and a dingle. His palate for success had been wedded, but the banquet had not begun. What was he to do? Wait tables. He had seen write screenplays. He had seen the distressing results of some of his friends marrying when they were not in a position to. They went down the, the sink. They prostituted their art in the sordid struggle. They became hemmed in by babies, domestic troubles, and insistent material demands. They sold out to the man, and then they became the man, man. They soon ceased to count. And yet, Stella, her eyes followed him through the dim shadows of the night. She was an obsession, an angel, a nymph, his genie of the dingle. <laughs> I gotta... 
I thought I'd be over it by now, but uh, <laughs> still keeps on giving. There's there's no getting over the genie of the dingle. He hesitated and did nothing. He visited her home in the dingle, and he drew inspiration from both. He fumed with jealousy at the sight of the unspeakable Ephraim. But the summer passed, and the winter, and the position remained the same. What are we on, like, year 34 of his dingle adventure? <laughs> The fucking Silmarillion over here. <laughs> uh, maybe the dingle only appears once a year. You know, one day a year is a dingle day. Uh, and in the following spring, he met Laura Van Stein. He met her at a house party at the Frankenstein Possets, the Bond Street picture <laughs> dealers. Uh, okay, the thing I love the most about that. <laughs> Okay. Is that somebody somebody had the chance to no longer be named Frankenstein and then went, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just hyphenate it. <laughs> Let's double down on this shit. Come on into the fold, possets. She was tall, fair, rather distinguished looking, very emotional, and gorgeously apparelled. I, I wouldn't say beautiful, but man, does she know how to accessorize. <laughs> she was a widow, three years older than David and enormously wealthy. Her husband had been an American canned fruit magnate. Oh my God, Mr. Dole died? <laughs> Why didn't somebody let me know? He fell into a vat of peaches. So sad. There was nothing of the canned fruit about Laura. She was passionately devoted to art and artists. She devoted her life to helping and flattering young painters and musicians and writers. She did not spare herself with regard to David, she took him aside under a pergola, pergola darkness, darkened by clusters of blood-red roses, and told him, more by the heaving of her bosom and her breathless intonations than by what she said, that he stood on the threshold of being what George Meredith, Thomas Hardy, and others had tried to be. You know each of my boobs has a chair on the Pulitzer Prize board. <laughs> and David drank it in and realized that here was a divinity. Little diamonds sparkled at her throat. A gold bag hung by a wondrous antique chain nestled between the folds of silk upon her lap. Her skin was incredibly fair, and there was a watchful beauty about her eyes, as though she were the high priestess guarding the sacerdotal offerings of all that were more priceless and forbidden in human life. Yeah. He's a writer, all right. <laughs> I mean, I got you at Hot Widow, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, Dingle. David walked with her, and as he had nothing else to flatter, and as he had nothing else to flatter, he flattered her beauty and her intelligence. Before the house party broke up, she invited him to visit her in town. <laughs> it's a ha from a house party to a pajama jammy jam. Yeah! It's a quick move. <laughs> Alas, poor Stella. Followed then a year of doubt, contrition, and dazzling dreams. On the eve of the day when he married Laura, she said, My darling, you shall be the greatest writer in the world. Everything shall be arranged for you. In London, you shall have the walnut-paneled room overlooking the park as your study. And at Fobisham, we shall build a bungalow hidden right away in the woods. Not a sound shall disturb you. And you will have so many six-toed cats. 
But change, change is the greatest thing to a creative artist. I understand the artist's soul. We will travel. You shall have beautiful rooms to work in at Naples, Florence, Venice, and Sicily. Always a change, fresh experiences, fresh people. Yeah, these Londoners are used up. Chuck them in the bin. <laughs> we will go to Egypt and Algeria, India and China. We will build a world of beauty around us, collecting as we go, adding to it, studying, finding more and more in each other. Kiss me, David. They stayed two months at Naples in a villa overlooking the bay. I think this is how the talented Mr. Ripley starts. <laughs> oh, look, look out, Stacy. David had a large study furnished with Francois Premier furniture and Persian rugs and a writing desk reputed to have been the property of Racine. And for six hours a day, he sat there staring at blank sheets of paper or reading over the things he had written last year. Sometimes he would start up and look out of the window at the bay, and other times he would bury his face in his hands in his dream, and dream of Stella and the Dingle. Uh, the Dingle is always greener. <laughs> he would visualize the last time he had visited her, her laughing, innocent eyes, the chain of marigold she had made and crowned him with, her babbling excitement over the things they were going to do together, and, oh God, he had never told her. His courage had failed him. He was a coward, and he could not think. Thoughts were going round and round and jumbling each other, and there was no genie to set him right. Where is the Lady Kazam that I need so badly? <laughs> he plunged into social dissipations. He bought experiences to which he had previously been a stranger, and he could do nothing with them. I think that's, he's talking about bath salts. Ah, makes sense. He told his wife he could not work on the, the, his honeymoon, and she was enchanted. Oh, there is no hurry, mon brave, she said. And they went to Sicily. They traveled from Sicily to Algiers, from Algiers to Cairo, then down the Nile as far as Fashoda, back from Fashoda to Cairo, crossed to Genoa, visited Florence, Siena, and Venice. It's, I know, it's his Instagram is nothing but Pictures of his wife leading him by the hand. It's been done, dude. <laughs> it it's all, a meme now. To me, it all sounds like a, a romantic adventure from Milan to Minsk. What is that? An erotic adventure <laughs> from Milan to Minsk. Rochelle, Rochelle? Yes. Okay. They stayed at Venice for two months in the hope that David would settle down to work. By this time, he had realized that his wife was shallow and superficial. Uh, sorry, which one of you is shallow and superficial? <laughs> All her enthusiasms were froth bubbling on the stream. She was always flying off at a tangent, being carried away by some new mood or fashion, discovering some new genius. She became irritated that David did not produce new and interesting work. Okay, sorry, which one of you is annoyed that you're not <laughs> producing new and interesting work? She tired a little of him and he found her dull. And their days were filled with great emptiness. In Venice, he did no work. And one day, he told her about the dingle. Uh, well, listen, if you've never had the dingle talk, then of course you're going to have problems. It's really something to do before you're married. Yeah. She listened apathetically and did not seem to understand. When he had finished, she said, How peculiar. 
Now, my dear, we will go to Bordeguera. My sister has a villa up in the hills, and she has written and offered to lend it to me. George Clooney, summer's nearby. Venice is too distracting. At Bordeguera, it is quiet and oh so restful. There you will feel constrained to work, my love. They crossed the peninsula and took up their abode at the Villa Gaspari at Bordeguera. It was indeed a glorious spot. Nestling in the hills, a garden overflowing with clematis, passion flowers, and roses, and an avenue of cypresses pointing to the sea. For some days David enjoyed the garden, and he sat at the open window of his study, biting the end of his pen. And then the mood of remorse and dissatisfaction again assailed him. He wandered aimlessly about the country and spoke bitterly. Mm. Italy sucks farts. There, <laughs> I said it. I said it. I can't take it back. Laura sought after other company, and had no difficulty in finding it along this gay and alluring coast. She left him to his own devices. One night at dinner, he made another reference to the dingle, and she turned on him and said bitingly, Oh, that dingle. Why do you always talk of that dingle? Well, Freud said it would. <laughs> no? <laughs> well, somebody has to, darling. Uh, and, and David pushed his plate away and walked out of the room and out of the villa. He walked bareheaded up into the hills. His heart overflowed with angry and disturbed feelings. He strode along quickly, and his breath came in little stabs between his nostrils. At length he returned and went straight into the salon, where Laura was arranging masses of blue delphin delphinium in a tall vase. Without any preliminary explanation, he bore down on her. I'll tell you why, he almost shouted. In every man's life, there is a dingle. Do you understand what I mean? A dingle, a dingle, a dingle. Some place that is just his and no others. This is my dingle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. Oh, dingle, dangle, dingle. I don't want to leave the dongle, dingle, dingle, dingle. Uh, some it's the environment he must have or he's no good. You can't explain it. He can't explain it. It's what his soul demands and nothing else will serve. It may be a room in a slum, a side chapel in a cathedral, a clearing in a forest, a set of conditions, the touch of a friend's hands. Almost anything it may be, but it must be just that. Nothing else is any good to him. One has to be loyal to one's dingle or... One is finished. This is just like Jerry Maguire sending off his dingle festo. <laughs> Show me the dingle. He picked up an embroidered mat from a side table and scrunched it in his hands. What? An embroidered mat from a side table? <laughs> I've not been true. I've described my dingle and I'm lost. I've, uh, I've deserted my dingle and I'm lost. He buried his face in his hands. Oh, God, we, I, we can't help it. We're made like that. By the door, Laura turned. Her lips were white. She said quite calmly, You fool. Five days later, David Stroud arrived in London. He stayed the night at his old rooms in West Kensington. His face was drawn and thin and dark rings encircled his eyes. 
but there was a buoyancy and hope about his bearing. He's got a date with his diggle destiny. In the morning, he awoke refreshed. He caught an early train to Mobblesham by the mill. It was April, and little clusters of primroses peeped at him from the hedges. His heart was beating rapidly. Stella! Would she be in the dingle? Was she still there? Did she think of him? Would she understand? Could he ever get back to the old position? Yeah, get back to that ridiculously unspoken love, except now it's a little more awkward because you're married position. (laughs) A little more awkward. At the turning where the lane forked, he was disturbed to find a large red brick house. He muttered curses on the activities of speculating builders and plunged down the lane. He had not advanced 200 yards when he suddenly stopped. He felt he was going to swoon. He staggered to a gate and supported himself. Beads of perspiration streamed down his face. It's finished, he said hoarsely. Everything is finished. Great, let's go to the (laughs) wrap-up. An iron gallery crossed the road. Great chimneys and cranes stood out against the sky. A wooden fence shut off what once had been the dingle. Above the top of it, he could see a wilderness of corrugated iron and white chalk, smoke and corruption. A steam navvy was puffing noisily. Figures were coming and going while standing out insolently at an angle. To the road was a large slate-colored board on which was painted Ephraim Barnes and Company, Lime and Cement Merchants. Ah, thus the dingle dream is dead. A little word of advice to all our listeners. Never get lime on your dingle. Trust me. Oh, yeah. Go straight to... Go straight to the emergency room. Don't learn oh, it. And <laughs> wash, wash with water. Get flushed. David clung to the gate. He had difficulty in getting his breath. An old woman who came hobbling down the lane stopped and said, Are you sick, mister? Is anything awry? He shook himself nervously and jerked out. No, no, thank you. It's all right. It's muggy for this time of year, remarked the old lady. Also, we're standing over a steam vent, and my skirt is going all (laughs) seven-year-age. David was struggling to keep himself in hand. He controlled his voice as he replied, Yes. Can you tell me, madam, who lives at the red brick house at the corner? She turned her old face in the direction he was looking and answered, I, Mr. Barnes herself, and his family lives there. Oh, could you tell me? Whom did Mr. Barnes marry? Mr. Barnes? Oh, he's married old Dr. Parsons' daughter. Is she still there? Aye, she do that. She's expecting a child, they say. She's a hard woman, though. Hard? Stella? How do you mean she's hard? You know, swole. (laughs) Cut. Jacked. Hey, they don't like her about these parts. She's too quiet, sullen, bitter-like. She never talks to us cottage folk. Nor to no one else, they say. They say her made her good man make them lime works in the dingle. Some whimsy or other. She's very queer-like. They say it's paying, though, hand over fist. He makes a lot of money, do Mr. Barnes. This this old lady sort of half... uh... Uh, rural Londoner and half uh, from Bangor, Maine. <laughs> I, uh, uh, it's finished. It's all finished. 
gasped David. Well, that, that's what's wrong with these stories. You keep thinking they're over and then they keep going. <laughs> Pardon, sir. <laughs> Great. Great. You got it. Good read. Good read. Nailed it. It's, it's all right. I beg your pardon. Thank you very much. The strange young man lowered his head and walked rapidly away. The old lady shook her head. Drink, perhaps, she murmured. A pleasant-looking young man, too. But David was only speaking the truth. It was finished. So relentless are the gods who preside over these mysterious comings and goings that if you look through Moody's or any publisher's trade catalog, you will find that no work by David Stroud has ever been published since the chalk pit attained so conspicuous a success. The End Well, that thing was done. Oh, I never thought I'd uh, get tired of a dingle, but um, yeah, that was a that was a lot, a lot of dingle yeah. in that story. What do you think the moral of the story was? Tell your girlfriend you're going to marry someone else. Okay, um, just that's just general advice, really. But um, you're saying just. Just a quick text. Doesn't <laughs> it doesn't have to be any big deal. No, like yo, getting married tomorrow. Peace out. Who dis? New phone. <laughs> I I also think, you know, there's a lot of lessons that could be learned, you know. Don't uh don't count your dingles before they're hatched. Yeah. Um you know, they never explain where the like who was whispering to him. And was it No, it's a it's a it's a dingle dilemma. You, you don't know a, a paradox of some kind. It's uh, it's just where inspiration comes from, Rob. It's fate, you know. F- someday you'll just be sitting around in a nice sylvan glen, and uh, you know it'll just fate will just hit you right in the dingle, and yep. it just that's how it happens. I think down. another moral is I should never try to do another Cockney woman's voice. <laughs> <laughs> taught us if it taught us anything it probably taught us that <laughs> hello governor <laughs> very, nice. very nice all right all right well i think uh i think we've all had fun with another uh another story so that about wraps it up for this week's episode so i'd like everybody to hopefully come back uh, next time and tune in for another exciting interrupted Dingles, 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 <laughs> dingle, dingle. Tail. Dingle!